The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, the podcast by Helen and Dave Edwards from Sonder Studio. We created Sonder Studio to empower humans in our complex age of machines and data. Our research-based, design-oriented consulting and education services help you and your organization work better with machines and data. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com. What are the cause and effect of my actions? How do I know the effect of the small acts in my life? How can I identify opportunities to have an impact that's much larger than myself? How can we make problems that seem overwhelmingly complex feel more manageable and knowable? How might we use the scaling tools of designers to tackle some of the world's largest and most complex problems? To answer these questions, we talked with Jamer Hunt about his book, Not to Scale, how the small becomes large, the large becomes unthinkable, and the unthinkable becomes possible. The book repositions scale as a practice-based framework for navigating social change in complex systems. Jamer is Professor of Transdisciplinary Design and Program Director for University Curriculum at the New School's Parsons School for Design. Jamer was the founding director of the Transdisciplinary Design Graduate Program at Parsons that was created to emphasize collaborative design-led research and a systems-oriented approach to social change. We're big fans of Jamer's book and have incorporated his concept of scalar framing into our work. We encourage you to check out his book as well and see how zooming in and out can help you frame complex problems in a way that makes them more addressable. Jamer, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. We're looking forward to chatting with you. Thanks so much for this invitation. I've been really looking forward to this, and it's been great getting to know all the different uh, people you've had on the podcast so far and their amazing work. So I'm very honored to join that list. Thank you for the invitation. Perhaps you could start off with just talking to us a bit about Not to Scale and what inspired you to write that book. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm going to do something unusual in my, my answer to this. Um, and I'm not going to start at the beginning. I might start at the end um, and work my way back to the beginning. And it's because I was recently asked to give a talk about you know the topic. And so I was preparing that talk and kind of pulling the material together. And I realized that um, as much as I had written a book on the topic of scale, I still didn't really understand it. And I still have trouble talking about it. And I think that was really what motivated me at the very beginning of all of this was that I tend to gravitate towards things that I can't quite understand that sort of loom off in the fog uh, that are only sort of where you only see the sketched outlines of what they might be. And those tend to be the things that attract my curiosity, my energy. Um, And for me, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I first started sort of picking up scraps like a magpie, trying to figure out what this project might become, I was coming across a range of just odd examples of things. And I'd I'd grab it and I'd stick it in a little sort of digital box and add another one and another one. And it, in some ways, I think if I really stretch way back to understand where this all came out of, the event that still sticks out, and it's now quite ancient internet history or computing history, um, was something that happened during what a period known as the browser war period, um, which you may not remember, but it was a time when uh, internet browsers were really first on the market. And uh, Internet Explorer was around Netscape. um, And what was remarkable about that time to anyone who didn't live through it was, in fact, you would buy your internet browser. It was a piece of software that was for sale in the way that, you know, Microsoft Word was for sale. And so you had to purchase your internet browser. It wasn't delivered uh, over the internet. It was delivered in a box. Um, and you had to go down to a computer store and pick it up and load it onto co- your computer, and then you could access the internet. And so, you know, we had all been kind of trained to understand that 
software was something you purchased in a box um, and that you owned it once you purchased it. And then at one kind of crucial moment in all of this, Netscape decides to give away their browser for free. And I remember thinking, wait, well, wait a minute. Like, if you sold, you know, uh, toilet brushes, uh, it would be awfully strange if your business model suddenly switched to, I'm going to give away toilet brushes. Uh, and there's kind of nothing in the history of business which would make you think that that is an intelligent move. And so I just remember thinking, wow, something fundamental is going on here. There's some sort of shift that is precipitating a pretty profound transformation within this particular industry where suddenly the business model is not that you make something and you figure out what it costs you to make it and you you know add a surcharge and you gain revenue that way but in fact you give away your product for nothing um, and you know this ends up if you sort of extrapolate forward ends up with uh, Chris Anderson's book free uh, you know which really tracks the kind of history of the notion of free and particularly how it's been leveraged through the internet and why that's different from some of the other kinds of free that we've had in the past. Um, and so for me, it was this kind of strange sense that something sort of subterranean, almost tectonic was shifting beneath our feet, uh, that I couldn't quite put my finger on what that was, but that it was pretty important. And it wasn't just the internet. It was something more than that. And I think um, since then, what's been probably primary for me in terms of the driving motivation of writing this book, uh, it comes out of another kind of pretty incidental moment, but one that I think most people can relate to, and it's it's the sort of uh, paper or plastic moment. Um, when you're at the supermarket and you've got a million other things on your mind, you just want to pick up some food for dinner, and, you know, someone says paper or plastic to you, and suddenly you're you're kind of stuck in this uh, sort of doom cycle of trying to understand, you know, which of these small acts is going to be less disastrous for the planet? Uh, you know, can I do I really understand all the science on it? Do I understand the supply chains and the logistics? Do I understand the life cycle analysis? And, you know, this is what you're going through on a Tuesday night when you're really just trying to pick up chicken at the market. And yet it seemed as though more and more we were confronting a range of issues that all seem to spiral in the same kind of way into this sort of landscape of um, kind of eternal return where you just went deeper and deeper and deeper into what could possibly be the right action to take, the right decision to make within this moment. And there was no way to know it, um, that there was something going on that was kind of impeding our capacity to just make simple decisions that felt right uh, and that felt sort of at the right scale for the things that we were choosing to do. So why was I, when I just needed a bag to carry my groceries home, having to contemplate, uh, you know, the global environmental disaster? This seemed somehow to be a harbinger of a kind of um, complexity that we were facing, but also a, a frustration, almost a paralysis in actually confronting the kinds of problems that, you know, we've been conf confronting since the beginning of modernity, but now seem to not have the tools to properly address, uh, not even have the sort of conceptual frameworks to properly address. And that to me, you know, was a good indication that there was something more going on here than simply a kind of cute problem about scale that the internet sort of operates on a different scale than we do. You know, isn't that interesting? Um, but that, that this was actually core to what I was trying to explore in my own work and in my own teaching, which was how to use design to address social change within complex systems. And that increasingly that was becoming uh, a sort of practice of frustration and paralysis um, rather than in really making any headway. And it seemed to me that, you know, we could look at most of the uh, sort of major challenges facing us now, and it seemed as, as if anything, we were heading backwards or sideways rather than forward, despite having, you know, resources and knowledge and education and learning and, you know, all the talent we could possibly need to address these things. These were human created issues, and yet we didn't seem able to kind of unwind them in any meaningful way. Um, so all of that kind of came together for me in a sort of sense that there was something going on in the world that was different. Um, and, and so in the book, I, I kind of trace it to two key moments, which are hardly original. One, of course, being the digitization of things, so turning physical things into ones and zeros. And then the other being the kind of what I call entanglement, which is just the ways in which all of our 
systems and networks are now sort of interlinked across um, a global network. And so that everything, every act that we undertake, every decision that we make now can be sort of traced across this global network in terms of the repercussions and the implications of what you're doing. And this is what makes decision-making so hard. And it is the thing that's driving that kind of paralysis. We're just trying to understand what's the cause and effect of my actions. If I do this, what will happen in the world? I think there used to be simpler relationships between those things. Um, you know, I used to know where the dump was uh, in my town. And so if I threw out a bottle, I could probably go find it in the dump. Uh, now, when I try and decide where to throw out a bottle, not only does it go probably halfway around the world, um, but I also don't really know what's going to happen to it at that point. And I don't know whether by recycling it, whether I'm actually going to be doing any good or contributing just to a larger problem and on and on and on. So it was really that combination of trying to understand how um, paralyzed we were by small acts and how difficult it was to understand the sort of landscape of decision-making such that we could draw a clear line between the, the things we chose to do and, and the implications of those choices. And sort of between all of that um, and over kind of years of picking up these little kind of interesting tidbits and facts and strange things going on, I began to think maybe there was more here than um, meets the eye. And so that's what really became the basis for the book was really trying to address this fundamental frustration and, and paralysis in the face of really pressing problems that people want to do something about but can't. I love the um, uh, histor historical touch point of going back to the Netscape browser. Oh, I can um, feel I'm getting all excited. Oh, so that. exciting! <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I remember that moment. Um, and uh, at the time, I was working at Macromedia, and uh, we made software that we sold right in boxes um, and uh, for hundreds of thousands of dollars to people who would create. Prior to the browser, we would create CD-ROMs, and there was this little executable that would allow it to the thing to play on the CD-ROM. And the browser came out, and we said, well, we have to, you know, to become an internet company. And so we spent time trying to figure out how to, how to adjust to that. And so there was this sort of this transition point where suddenly we were creating a player, originally Shockwave and then Flash, that would then hmm. plug into the browser and would all be given away for free. And there was quite a lot of cost to that. There was a lot of infrastructure. We had one of the biggest websites in the world in terms of download speeds, huge, you know, pipes to get people to download this stuff. Hmm. Um, but there was sort of that same scale question of, well, if we do all of this and we spend all of this money giving all of this thing away for free, will, will there be enough developers who will buy the software that would actually make the business model work? And I love the fact that you go back to that moment because it was something where everybody was going, well, that's crazy. Like this is, you know, this thing's going to be big. And you still look back and even in like, I think the number I looked up recently was in 1995, there were still only 9 million people you know, actually on the internet or some ridiculous number mm. like that. It was so small, but we knew it was going to be, but we didn't know how big, right? There was no sense of how, how, how could you predict that scale? And so you're making these huge decisions um, based on a concept of scale that required the network to actually do something, right? It created a system, meaning not like the, the internet, but actually the network of people that enough people would do this, which would then influence other people to do that, which would then have some of those people then come and pay us money for the things that we were doing. It was a complex system that we were trying to affect the change. So when we launched, when the, when we launched Shockwave, was the first product I actually launched in my career, um, one of the key things it did is I got the MT, folks at MTV.com to, to put a Shockwave movie on their, on their homepage. And on, it, was a, <laughs> it was an animation of a Harley Davidson going rumble, 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 rumble. And it was so popular, it crashed their site. It took the whole thing down. Um, but we had to get, that was our, like, that was, the, that was the push that we had on the system, right? Like, how do we get the coolest site in the world, at least at the time, that's what I thought, you know, to do something, which would then affect all these other people to do something. And I do find it, I mean, it's a wonderful moment of history because, yeah, now you can see me getting all excited because it takes you back in, the, back in the day. But I think you're totally right that scale is something that has suddenly become, or it feels like over the last couple of decades, it's just become this sort of never-ending thing. Everything seems to be constantly getting bigger, and it feels like, almost like we're in this sort of constant exponential growth phase where the scale just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so I did like when you got into, and you're talking about, in the book, you're talking about scalar framing and talking about how to step through. 
you know, you're going from 10 to the first to 10 to the sort of 10th, but I felt like you could keep going, you know, that it get, kept getting bigger. But actually, it's a good question, which is, can you actually describe the scalar framing just to put that in context for those who haven't read the book and understand your perspective? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and it's important to note that the scalar framing concept really was inspired by a very famous movie by Charles and Ray Eames called Powers of Ten. And it was a movie that the designers have kind of watched forever. It's a, a and many people probably growing up in the 60s or 70s and 80s might have seen it in elementary school. It was that kind of thing. And in it, um, it's a really simple concept, just gorgeously executed at the time, um, which was they start with a couple picnicking on a blanket in Chicago. And they the camera is sort of pose, poised right above the couple overhead. And they create a frame around the couple that's um, one meter by one meter. Uh, and they suggest that um, we look at that frame and understand kind of what's within the frame. And then the camera sort of zooms out. And this is now quite familiar because this is what Google Maps has, has incorporated, which is this zoom function to zoom out by certain degrees. So they zoom out by one power of 10. So now they're looking at a rectangle around the couple that's uh, 10 meters by 10 meters. And you get sort of more information. You're further away from the couple. You start to see more within that frame. And then they zoom out again. 10 to the power of two, and it's um, 100 meters by 100 meters. And increasingly, as they zoom out, the couple disappears, and you see sort of new information along the way. The couple becomes less significant. Suddenly, you're looking at Chicago, and then you're looking at the Midwest, and then you're looking at the United States, and then you're looking eventually, as they zoom out, I think to 10 to the 26th, you know, you're, you see the, the Earth, um, sort of uh, just like that famous uh, photograph um, that we all remember, the kind of blue marble photograph. And then they zoom out further and you're in sort of the cosmos. Um, and then they reverse it and they zoom back in and they come quickly back to the couple. And then they zoom to 10 to the minus one. So they also use the concept as something that can look deeper into things. So they go into the you know, level of the cellular and then the molecular and the atomic, et cetera, and they go down into the negative scale. And I always thought that was an incredibly powerful framework because it was a way of recognizing that with each scale change, you have new information. And with that new information, you can do new things and you can make different decisions than you might. And so for me, what was important about uh, scalar framing, which was the concept I eventually um, came up with in the book, was that it allows you to take on something that is very complex and seems overwhelming and in a sense sort of slice it into more manageable layers or more knowable uh, sort of scaffolds with which to think. And so the idea was to kind of take a problem. And what I would always say to people is, my hunch is whatever you're working on right now, you are looking at at a particular scale. And if you then move from that scale, if you move further out or if you move further in, you will gain new kinds of information. Um, you will gain a uh, new perspective on what you're doing. You'll find new collaborators to work with, and you'll come up with new ideas as a result of that. And so you can look at something like bicycling, as I do in the book, and you look at that at 10 to the power of one, and all of this is somewhat arbitrary, but at 10 to the power of one, if you think it's sort of the, the level of the human, and this was one of the other things that came up over time, and this is, again, something designers have been working with quite a lot over time, which is you think at kind of different scalar units. So maybe 10 to the power of one is the human and 10 to the power of two is kind of the building and 10 to the power of three is the neighborhood or the community or the region or the nation. Or So you can think of it in human groups. You can think of it in geographical uh, kind of units. You can also think of it in non-human units. And that's something that um, I didn't incorporate as much into the book, which is to really sort of displace the human from that. It's a very human-centric way of looking at the world. But what if you look in terms of the... Um, you know, the individual uh, kind of animal or plant or whatever it might be. And you can look in terms of groups of those, in terms of a biome, a bioregion, an ecosystem, etc. So we can also use it to displace. But the idea was that simply that if you think about the problem that you're working at, working on, and let's say you're trying to make um, teaching better in the classroom, um, and maybe you're focusing on 
creating better textbooks. Um, I might call that 10 to the power of two, let's say. And then you zoom out a little bit and say, well, if we looked at this from a little further away, what, you know, what might we learn from that? And you might say, well, look at the way that the teacher is interacting with the students. We see patterns within that. And maybe it's the way the teacher is interacting with the students. That might be something to explore that might be more effective in addressing learning than just improving a textbook. Or we might zoom out again to 10 to the power of four and say, well, maybe it's actually the way the day is, the schedule is structured for all students. You know, maybe we're getting them to school too early, or maybe they're um, not getting enough breaks during the day. And you could zoom out a little bit further, and you might say, well, maybe it's actually the school system and the way that funding happens within your city, and that that may be a more effective way to address the problem than really just trying to fix a textbook. Um, and the kind of the interesting part about it is there is no right answer. Um, there is no right sort of scale at which you can address an issue. But the opportunity is to kind of look across those scales and, in a sense, sort of defamiliarize your vision, um, reframe the problem in a way that kind of brings in new information, just as zooming out to see the world hanging in the sky helped us to understand the environmental problem in a brand new way that we were on the only planet we could live on and, you know, there was no escape. And if we couldn't fix it, we had nowhere else to go. Um, and that really launched a lot of the modern environmental movements. As you zoom out in scale, you may learn something about, say, the funding of public education within the city that you live that you find might be an incredibly powerful lever for making change within the city. And if you are able to act at that level, and not everybody is, but if you're able to act at that level, that may be a way to address the problem that might be more effective than, say, the textbook that you were originally invited to act on. And this is also a kind of classic move within design of just reframing the problem. Um, and so in some ways, the scalar framing was really just picking up on that and saying, how can we systematize it a bit? Can we look in even closer? Can we zoom out even further? And how can we use what we learn from that to identify new information, identify new collaborators potentially. So for instance, with the, the um, education example, you might decide that you want to become part of the school board and you might start working with other of your kind of citizen neighbors on the school board to affect real change there. And there may be people there who have particularly important wisdom to share about how to make that sort of change. Uh, that might not have ever happened if you had stuck at the level of the textbook. So it's really just a way of managing what to me seemed increasingly um, like a never-ending set of kind of local global problems. And I think that was the thing that I took away from developing this framework was that there is no way anymore to think of a problem as isolated from everything else in the world. Uh, and that may seem like a paralyzing way to address it. But for me, what it said was, um, we, are all, we all now have a responsibility to understand things at the very hyper-local level, um, because those matter and the stakeholders at those levels matter, um, and they're probably the ones most affected by what you're addressing. But that also, if you zoom out, it is going to be inflected by, affected by a global set of pressures or opportunities that you also have to account for. And if you say that every local problem is global and every global problem is local, that may feel like it paralyzes you. My answer would simply be that by using the scalar framing technique, you can identify sort of a, a level, say 10 to the power of three, or call it the community level, or 10 to the power of one, the individual level, um, where you might actually be able to kind of keep your focus and make a real difference. Um, so the idea really came just from thinking about the fact that every problem, in a sense, scales now constantly sort of isolate, uh, excuse me, oscillates between the local and the global. And we need tools to help us to kind of think through those problems in new sort of ways to unstuck us um, from the kind of typical ways in which we frame problems. Yeah, what I like about it a lot is um, that, First of all, it sort of gives people the power back again. You know, it doesn't collapse under its own weight of, oh, my God, everything's just this global, where do we stop? Um, so it gives you the power back to be able to say, but to name something. We're going to work at 10 to the power of three or whatever. I think one of the things that really struck me about it was that it's a much more disciplined way of finding those new collaborators there's an actual rationale that you can that you can discover, and the third thing that I found particularly powerful is 
that um, it allows you to see that not only does the problem scale or your your frame scale, your explanation scale. So you can have, you know, the explanation for why the textbook is not fulfilling uh, the its goals in terms of the student. You can take that explanation, well, the, the textbook's on one level of explanation, but the teacher's on the next and the system and the school district or the university is at that next level. So you can sort of have this nested hierarchy of explanations that then allow you to have a nested hierarchy of potential solutions. So I thought that it just allows, that that conceptual framework allows you to keep the problem in your own mind in a way that, that it just doesn't without it. And it's also, you know, one of the things that I that I think maybe I didn't even understand at the time, certainly undersold, um, was also that it's a real act of creativity to imagine other frames. Uh, we think of it as somewhat sort of obvious once it's presented to you. Oh, of course, well, the, you know, the, the classroom is 10 to the power of two and the school is 10 to the power of three. But you really can think in, in other kinds of ways to understand the potential opportunities that are revealed through this. So, you know, if you're thinking at something at sort of this, let's say you go to 10 to the minus one, again, a sort of arbitrary way to frame it, and you start to think at the sort of cellular level about learning, um, you might start to realize that nutrition uh, is something that could have a huge impact on how people learn. Uh, And that might be something that you just never considered because you wouldn't have thought at 10 to the power of one and to to even imagine, and again, like I I want to keep saying, like this this framing is an artificial construct. It's just sort of a heuristic that you use, but if you start to kind of imagine what minus one seems like or what minus two is, uh, it's not obvious. Um, You have to use your imagination. You have to use creativity. There is no right answer. But what happens is it it gets you into a kind of opportunity space that's profoundly different than the one that you might be stuck in, which is, you know, often how people end up working is they tend to always sort of operate at at a very similar scale. It's comfortable. It's knowable. They know how to impact. They know how to present the information. But if you can move beyond that and get into these other sorts of um, opportunity spaces, there are, you know, I have a neighbor here um, who was instrumental in arguing before the Supreme Court on the importance of free school lunches for children, um, because it turns out that especially um, poor children very often come to school hungry and that the learning, um, you know, the, the opportunity for learning is dramatically impacted by access to food and to nutrition. And if school, you know, someone looking at a textbook is never going to come up with that. But you might have if you started to think in these alternate frames. So it also, it encourages a kind of imagination, a creativity. um, And because there are no right answers, you can also sort of argue over these things. And that sort of argument and that disputation is probably healthy to the creative process as well to say, well, no, that's a you know, I'm thinking at this kind of level rather than that sort of level. And so all of this, I think, is is useful. And, and it does, as you suggested earlier, it, you know, it's sort of it's a bit of a life raft um, or, you know, like a, a handrail um, in that, you know, these problems are really tough to deal with. And if you're someone who is able to really see all the levels and understand the global implications of these things, and if you're trying to just improve a school system and you end up, you know, starting to think about all the ways in which, you know, income inequality affects educational access in the United States, it's hard to, it's hard to then, you know, decide that you're going to get into um, policy. So, you know, maybe you scale back to something that is manageable for what you do. And if, and if you're a graphic designer and making a better textbook can have a real impact, then work at that scale. That's totally fine. Every scale can have impact. It's just that sometimes people get stuck at one scale or another. I'll echo the, uh, the value of looking up and down the scale. We, um, we recently ran a, a workshop and we were using um, the, 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 the sort of question was, uh, what's the impact of generative AI on uh, education? And we narrowed in on... Uh, uh, on a particular school, and we use SCAD mm-hmm. as our school because we have a daughter who's at SCAD. Um, so it was, it was a familiar place that we could run with. Mm-hmm. And um, But going up and down the scale was important. 
you know, understanding the impact on an individual student. And we can think about Sophie because that's, you know, we know her, we know a bunch of other SCAD grads who we've hired in our business. So we can think about their particular fields and what it means for them. We can think about the school as an institution. We can think about creative schools as a group. We can think about, you know, the, the impact on human learning and creativity, you know, going up and down helps you understand what's, what you're really worried about. Um, even if that's not, you're not operating at that level. So the, you know, the, 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 the true worry that, that, that the group we were working with, you know, got to was thinking about the impact on human creativity and on human learning, but you can't operate at that scale. That wasn't addressable, you know, at least in our sort of, you know, in the example problem, our, our, our addressability was, was at an individual institution level. Okay. But at least we knew what we were really worried about. And we also knew what we were really worried about for the individual student, you know, as parents of a child at the design school, we're really interested in what's the impact going to be on the employability of the, of the student when they get out. So you feel the, the, what's really important, you know, by going up and down the scale. And on the other side, we were thinking about, um, what's the you know, generative AI. And we're thinking about individual products, chat GPT, Dolly two, those kinds of things all the way up and down the chain of who makes it, who doesn't, what's the actual interaction. And you could feel much, a, a much richer analysis of the problem and a much richer ability to address the solution because you're thinking at these different scales. Yeah. And the, the thing that I deal with all the time, I think in, and working on and and working with students on complex issues is just the you know the the difficulty in getting a handle on any part of it um, that if you do your homework and you do your research and you try and understand what's going on uh, it just gets paralyzing um, and that's not helpful to anybody um, and so you know having something. Uh, it reminds me of how useful it was when when our <laughs> when our kids were younger and they were crying in the middle of the night. There's this famous book by this guy named Ferber, um, and people now talk about ferberizing their children. It's a book that helps you to get your child to sleep, and how important it was when your child was screaming in the middle of the night and you knew you could go in and calm them, um, but you shouldn't. To just be holding on to this book, um, because if you're holding on to the book, it said don't go in there. You needed something to hold on to, and you know, sir. So for the people that I work with, you know, having this framework is just a something to hold on to. It's kind of a an artificial construct that allows you to, you know, feel a little bit more confident, to feel a little less overwhelmed by the situation. And, you know, it, it has its issues. I think one of the things that I, you know, was really important to me in terms of talking about it as well was also thinking about how we frame things, because it's very easy to start to think about or it's, it's very easy to ignore the extent to which <clears throat> one's own scalar framing is very biased by who you are and how you see the issues. And so it's also critically important to kind of shatter that framing and recognize that maybe you need other people to be part of that process as well to see how someone else might be framing that. So how your daughter might be looking at um, you know, these generative AI um, applications and how, you know, she might be struggling or excited by that or how the how an administrator within the institution might be and, you know, or how the the account executive who's managing finances is having to think about things in a new kind of way. And so also kind of breaking those frames is really important. It can It's very seductive to think that, you know, in the way that the Eames film seems to show this kind of universal camera that sort of sees all and knows all and you kind of ignore the fact that well they could have been doing it shot it in really other places with other people in other ways and we would have learned other things and that's you know just as important so as much as it can be really uh, a strategic tool in terms of managing complexity I think you know it should come with a warning sticker on it you know that uh don't forget um, that how you frame something is really particular to kind of your position in the world, and that's not one shared by everybody, and particularly not by everyone affected by whatever kind of um, problem you're working on. So it also, you know, it needs some nuance in how we think about it. But that's also, you know, ultimately to me, just more fodder for creativity. That's more opportunity um, to speak to somebody whose view you may not share and learn how they see the problem and maybe open up a brand new opportunity um, that you had never seen before. So it still works. It just has to be kind of um, nuanced in that way.
Do you find it it helps with with productivity in the design process? I mean, the um, the when you talk about say an individual bias or or um, needing to bring more people in, there's always this balance between um, having lots of ideas that are really at the edges of the solution space, if you like, versus um, sort of having something that's that's more constrained, closer to what you understand, more addressable perhaps. But um, it strikes me that, that by being more um, aware and having more um, sort of focus on where, you, where, this, where any given idea might fit in the scale, that you can get a sense of just how um, much you're ever going to be able to participate in it, like how addressable it is for, for your particular organization or your group that, that, that you're working with. And you know, when I was reading through the book, I said, gosh, I wish I had this a few years ago when we were um, doing some work with a group that a lot of the ideas were just completely impractical. And because they just weren't addressable at the level that that group could ever access. So they might have been great ideas, but there was just no point. It was just wishful thinking to spend a lot of time talking about them. And the problem with wishful thinking is that when reality hits, it's kind of demotivating. And so what I liked about about the structure is that it's, it's yet another way of not um, – overly constraining a conversation, but being able to guide things to a place where you're not setting yourself up for sort of disappointment because you could, you can kind of link more. Well, you know, that's a great idea, but there's just no way we're ever going to be able to talk to the patent office about this or in the generative AI one. If you go down to the 10 to the minus, 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 um, you don't. We're not drilling into the nutrition of the student. In that case, you'd be drilling into the um, the heritage of the data and the labelling of the training data sets. Uh, there's no way that you could develop a solution for that. It is not addressable for for a, a, a group of administrators in a in a design school. Um, but it alerts you to the importance. It doesn't say it's not important. So I think it's just it, it's a nice. Um, way of managing different parts of the information as well. So not everything has to be something that you can do something about, but it can still be important and it can still be something that you need to understand. So I found that a, a, a really helpful conceptual tool. You know, I think one of the things it does is it does help to generate a sense of collaboration as well, so that if you are not able to affect change at that level. And I think for a lot of people, there is a limit to what they can do and a limit to their skill set. One of the things that is important is to recognize that maybe you need to partner with somebody. Maybe there's someone out there that can help you access a different level where you feel like maybe it is more efficacious to work at that level, but I need some help. Uh, And so if nothing else, it also starts to bring in the possibility of identifying other stakeholders, other collaborators in a in a particular project that might allow you to move up a level or down a level or address some of these things that might seem unaddressable. I think you're exactly right um, that, you know, knowing that learning in the classroom is impacted by federal policy doesn't mean that you should go out and, you know, run for office. Um, That may be a kind of an extra long route to solving the problem. Um, But it does help you to recognize that maybe at the local level there are some policy issues and maybe if I, you know, work with or reach out to a local city council member or, a you know, um, education board member, that maybe we can actually make some progress on this and that might be a more sort of uh, important lever in all of this. And, and I would also, um, you know, I do want to point out as well the kind of um, debt owed to Danella Meadows and her leverage points um, in her book, uh, Thinking in Systems, which is um, is sort of my Bible in a certain sense, um, kind of opened my eyes to almost everything in the world. And um, in there, she talks about all these different leverage points and the sort of effectiveness of them. And and clearly, the sort of uh, scalar framing is a great debt to that because that's a really profound way of thinking about where can you sort of uh, you know, in the kind of acupuncture way, use the least amount of pressure to create the most amount of impact. And, you know, that's really part of the promise of the scalar framing as well, is that in some instances, 
you know, what seems like a lot of work at one scale might not be that hard at another scale if the kind of uh, acupuncture point is properly, you know, sort of addressed and targeted and, and moved. So there's, you know, there's a, a lot of opportunity kind of within the framework itself for sort of new ways of thinking and, and to your point, you know, sort of knowing what your limits are and how to best operate within those. And if, you know, if all you can do is redesign a book or if all that you can do is, you know, talk to students about ethical AI use, um, that's a good start. Uh, and we need work at those levels too. Unless you can see it in the context of the bigger thing. Yeah, I, I, as a as a process engineer by training, I totally understand the, the that desire to find these, these points. I mean, pinch point technology was like a, a big thing for for us is try to how do you find these places where the crossover between um, energy systems is is the lowest the easiest have you i'm curious if you've found because I, I do find that one of the the greatest scaffoldings in here is that idea that you can move up and down and look for these new collaborators that weren't obvious it's such a quick win that that's the sort of easiest thing to pull out when you've got a group of people I'm curious if you've seen instances where um, uh, what were framed as competitive relationships have become collaborative relationships, if that's an experience that you've had in any of the um, work you've done. That's a really interesting question. No, I can't. um, I can certainly think of instances where, you know, competitors have had to pull together. In fact, there was just a Super Bowl ad, I think, with, you know, two competitive products coming together in one ad. Um, but I can't think of a way in which the, the scalar framing has has really done that yet. But it would be interesting to think about it unleashed amongst politicians, for instance, um, who might, you know, often think in very, um, not diametrically opposed, but but very kind of binary ways about what will make change effective. And so, you know, seeing that there may be other ways to look at the problem for, for politicians might be a way to get them to re-recognize that there's opportunity within compromise that would be um, different. And certainly, you know, within a competitive market landscape, that's a really fa- fascinating question. I don't have a good answer to it. Well, I just th- I've been sort of noodling on it, um, mainly because of feral pigs, but... Um, <laughs> because I, I love that you included feral pigs in here, um, and uh, we'll have to put some notes in the in the show notes about the absolutely terrific podcast we listened to about the feral pigs. Yes, um, but the if you're thinking about so even just things like like land use constraints and user conflict, you know, snowmobiles versus skiers versus snowshoers on a piece of land, or mountain bikers versus trail you know trail runners and horse riders, um, those are such so competitive at a certain level. But intuitively we've seen um, groups come together where they go up a level and you know, there's obvious things like having, you know, separate trails for separate groups and then then and separate areas that, that are fair, you know, solving it through fairness. But other ways of thinking about... Um, Going up levels and 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 then applying those different tests at different levels. So, what if you went up the next level and there was sort of more of a um, not just a national forest, but the next level up version of that? So it kind of got me thinking, as well as the feral pigs, which I thought was just fascinating. Because the other thing about the feral pigs that is so true is that um, it only ta- it, it, it it only takes a. F- one or two little things, big things can happen from small beginnings, right? And this idea that that the feral pigs um, came because a few people want to release them for hunting, at least you start to think about, well, is there are there other systems that we can think about solutions where it's just a small change at the beginning um, and then it can take off, not not as bad as the feral pigs. We're looking at for something more positive than that. But um, I, I, I just think it, you sort of wrapping that in was such a, an interesting way of, of bringing in other aspects of complexity, not just the scale part. Well, you know, I think you put your finger on what I often think about as the kind of cascading paradox, which is that um, we can often imagine all the different ways in which we have, as humans, have made very small changes that have resulted in disastrous outcomes. 
<clears throat> but what we're very poor at is figuring out very small changes that result in positive outcomes. And so it's really this kind of weird paradox where we can just go through this litany of things that we've done where it's like, well, we'll just make a small change here and then everything falls apart versus moments where we might, where what we really want is to be able to make some targeted small improvement in something that would kind of cascade across almost virally uh, and make real kind of systemic change. It's very hard to find those examples. I'm not sure why. Um, why systems seem to always operate in that kind of more negative uh, cascading way. But the, your your question also about the competing interests reminds me of the ways in which in some instances in, in the snow, particular kind of snowmobilers and cross-country skiers and all of that is the um, the way in which there have been issues like that, which are typically framed as rights issues, as individual rights issues and property rights issues, that when kind of zoomed out and people look at them from a more kind of environmentalist and nature-loving uh, scale, so at the scale of the forest, and say, well, you know, how can we kind of allow both of these practices, but also recognize that they both have impact on the environment and you're out here enjoying the environment, uh, you know, that should be really the goal here is to maximize the likelihood that the, you know, environment will benefit from our presence there. And so in that way, you know, that is one of those sort of examples where you often see people who will get in disputes over a kind of, you know, one frame or sort of one scale or level, which is my rights versus your rights to do X, Y, or Z. When you zoom out and say, well, what does this mean for, you know, your ability to be out in the woods enjoying nature, suddenly they can come together around a kind of environmental agenda that might allow for a, a solution that's different than simply trying to adjudicate kind of my rights versus your rights and, and realize that there's something larger at stake uh, within what you're doing. And that, yes, it sometimes comes down to these very minor things, but at other moments, there might be a sort of bigger purpose. Um, and, you know, this was a this was used as well in a kind of uh, argument around, well, pro-choice and, um, uh, you know, sort of right to life people really looking at how you ultimately just reduce teenage pregnancy, um, that both of them had an interest in reducing teenage pregnancy. They might be a, opposed at a kind of ethical, moral and religious level around certain practices. But if you zoomed out and said, well, what could we both work on that might benefit us both that we could agree on, and it was reducing teenage, unwanted teenage pregnancies. Um, and that gave a kind of shared agenda at a different level than simply what was a kind of unsolvable political fight. I thought you were going to say the only way we're all going to get along is when we know the aliens are coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, find, I find it interesting, this, um, the question about collaboration and looking for new people to collaborate as you move up and down the scale. And I, it, um, makes me wonder about the connection that you find between that uh, and transdisciplinary design, sort of the idea that that you want to have a diversity of mindset and skill set and approach in tackling these complex problems. Yeah, and that's really, um, you know, for... For those who don't know my background, you know, I was a founding director of a graduate program in transdisciplinary design at Parsons School of Design in New York. And, um, you know, it was interesting at the time because uh, we ended up using the word transdisciplinary, not because we had a really sort of um, clear sense of what it meant or what the agenda was. We actually used it because nobody else was really using it at the time. And we figured we could kind of own the term. Um, and so it was sort of what, what I thought of at the time as a kind of empty signifier, this thing that sort of meant nothing to anybody. So we could kind of fill it with our own content and in a sense kind of have some purchase on that word that others might not have. But yeah, in, in, in a lot of ways, the idea was that uh, these kind of complex problems and wicked problems from from Horst Riddle and Melvin Weber, um, that they can no longer be addressed by the sort of sort of heroic individual designer, that most design education was focused around kind of individuals who might solve the problem. And that, you know, for for these sorts of things, you really needed to have all kinds of perspectives if we were going to make any sort of headway, but that working together was something that was really complex and difficult. And so we created the program in some ways, not because we knew what we were doing. Um, I've never known what I'm doing, uh, but instead to, to kind of open up a space where we can explore how we might teach a new generation of students to be kind of open and experimental and work with other kinds of people and figure out the means by which that can can start to work. And particularly in going back to this notion of framing and what, you know, scalar framing hopes to do, 
The idea was also that by collaborating with others, by talking with others, by bringing in people who have very different mindsets and ways of seeing things, that that collision of perspectives is what generates new ideas and new thinking, I think, in some of the most profound sorts of ways. And, you know, I'm, I'm um, in a terrible kind of way, I'm constantly referring to this uh, famous Donald Rumsfeld quote about the uh, known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. Um, and for me, the really sort of holy grail of the kind of transdisciplinary design approach and program, et cetera, was to get us beyond the kind of known unknowns that in a lot of our work, we sort of, uh, we know what the problem is. We just aren't quite sure how to address it, but we kind of pretty much know the way forward. And for me, design at its very best is when you're moving into the space of the unknown unknowns, where you don't even know what you don't know about the problem when you're trying to see around a corner. And for me, the only way to really do that, is, you can't do that on your own. You have to do that with other people who bring in really different ways of thinking about the problem or different complaints or, you know, different ideas or different histories or different ethnic or religious backgrounds. And really having a frank and open kind of discussion um, about what the possibilities are with what you're confronting. And it's only through those sorts of ways that we're going to kind of crack open really big ideas. I think the known unknowns is really good for incremental change, uh, where we sort of know what the problem is and, you know, we just don't quite know how we're going to address it. But the unknown unknowns is really, for me, a way of thinking about how we're going to put ourselves in a position to, in a sense, unlearn the problem space and and be open to a kind of radical new way of approaching it or looking at it. And for me, that often comes down to who are you having conversations with and what is it that's sort of shattering the conventional frames through which you look at a particular problem or an idea. And so, yeah, for me, collaboration is absolutely essential. And it was kind of funny within the program, um, you know, we one of the things we did was we tried to make um, all of our projects and all of our studios collaborative instead of, you know, most of the time it's, students going through kind of on their own working on things. Everything was collaborative. And collaboration is one of those things that we, you know, at various times tried to teach. Um, and it's one of those strange problems where at the very beginning, collaboration is always just a sort of disagreement between two people, kind of two people who just can't see things the same way, don't get along. And then you can kind of upskill with all sorts of frameworks and approaches to um, collaboration and new sophisticated ways of addressing collaboration and all that. And when you're armed with all of that and you're, you know, really sophisticated in how you approach it and you get into a situation, it's going to come down to just the same issue of not really seeing things the same way. Uh, so there's a way in which collaboration uh, you know, sort of is never solvable. But what what we were able to do, which I'm quite proud of, was because we immersed the students in so much collaboration, they just became like fish in water. It was so easy for them. It was so comfortable for them. It was a natural mode of working. And I think in the world that, you know, that we're living in now and with the problems that we're facing, people have to be able to collaborate naturally and not defensively and not feel like they'd have to own certain ideas and all kinds of things. So for me, collaboration was really essential. It's interesting the, uh, the collaboration, I mean, you want to get to that, that form of cohesion, right? Um, and, uh, when, when you're coming at it from different perspectives, sometimes that can be that, you know, that's, that's the difficult part, but at the other time, that's, that's actually where, but the interesting thing is where you find those points of cohesion you know, where you can actually come together on an idea when you're coming at it from such a different perspective. How, what, how would you think about the, the history of the program? It's been more than a decade now, right? Um, and it has, do you yes. have any reflections? Like, would you, uh, would you do anything differently? Would you call it something different? Uh, you know, try, try, try out a different <laughs> word. Uh, um, you know, is there, is there, a, is there a, like, what, what do you think the, the, the future of this kind of educating designers in this transdisciplinary approach um, it's, it has been, and, and, you know, I'm, I hesitate to say this, it's been successful beyond my imagination. I'm sorry, I'm sort of prepared for a certain level of, uh, sort of graduates who kind of had a lot of debt, went out into the world, struggled to find work, you know, never really interesting people, but never really caught on. And that was absolutely the case in the first couple of years. And then suddenly, and in part because we did a lot of groundwork in sort of making, um, 
building a community of, of practice and a community of practitioners out in the world who are very invested in the work. And so we brought people in and, and got them familiar with what we were doing. And, and now the students are just remarkably successful in terms of moving on to whether they're working in design consultancy jobs, whether they're working in um, innovation centers within kind of NGOs. Um, they're just doing remarkable work. And it's been astonishing that they've been this successful because we really didn't set out with a clear notion of what we were doing, we set out with a clear notion that we needed to do something. And that something was to take advantage of some of the affordances of education, which is a little more space and time to do things, the opportunity to do things at lower risk with, you know, small to no budgets, but at least because they had small to low budgets, you know, you didn't have to worry if you didn't get things right. Um, and to just bring in talented people. And that's what we've done. And that formula has worked exceptionally well. I think for me, the... Um, the thing that I would do over, about the only thing I would do over again is, you know, I would build in a means by which it becomes sort of unraveled or dismantled every few years. Um, I think the the risk is for it to become an orthodoxy um, and to become sort of one way of teaching as if you sort of come in and we teach you transdisciplinary design and you, you leave with that kind of... Um, patch on your shirt that says you're now certified to teach it. Um, I'm really interested in the ways in which we can sort of build systems that also have baked into them their own unraveling um, so that we can, you know, five years into a program, let's say, or into a new organization and into a new business that we can say, well, let's take it apart now and let's try and reimagine it given everything that we know at this particular moment and see if we come up with something that's really different, new, fresh, invigorating. Um, it's risky, but I think it's also a way to move beyond the kinds of um, you know, hardening of certain sorts of practices and the things that just become too di difficult to move away from because you've invested so much time and energy into them um, that they become sort of things you can no longer give up or it requires so much effort to unmake them that nobody wants to. And so you can't. I think for me, I'm, I've become very interested in this idea that um, we have to start imagining how we unravel systems uh, at the same time that we're building them, that systems may be part of the problem themselves because they kind of build in hierarchies and they build in inequalities and they build in injustices and they build in all kinds of things that once they're sort of built, it's very hard to unbuild them. And so I'm, I'm kind of more curious now. And I think an educational uh, context like this program would have been perfect for sort of unraveling after a few years and just taking all the students who've been through and the, the administrators and the faculty and the partners and saying, well, here's what we built, but let's now build something kind of new that gets us even further along with the idea rather than where we're currently at, which is a lot of ideas which now students think are mandatory that they have to learn, that they have to do, that become, you know, sort of uh, orthodox when they really never were meant to be that way. And so I think it's a way of imagining how we kind of undo some of the systems that we build along the way. I was enjoying this, uh, an article this morning in The Atlantic about, the, about LaGuardia and uh, mm -hmm. the way that they um, built the new LaGuardia in, in the sky, you know, above the old LaGuardia. Um, and then they destroyed the old LaGuardia and, and made it all into roadways right underneath. But it was it was an interesting. I I I, I, I sort of noted that one as a potential metaphor to use when thinking about hmm. you know systems that need to be reinvented and not necessarily destroying it because it, you need you still needed to move however many millions of passengers yeah. through every year and all the planes and everything else, and they totally rebuilt everything in the sky above it. Um, it was kind of an interesting idea. So early on in the podcast, I, I believe what you said is that um, you, you you get attracted to things that you don't understand that are in the fog. Um, and so perhaps for sort of a final topic or question is um, what, what's in the fog that that's attracting you now? Like what, what don't you understand that you're trying to trying to unravel? So there are two things that I can quickly speak to. Um, and the first I just spoke to, <laughs> which is this idea of um, broken systems. Uh, you know, for the book, I lean upon and, and use this kind of notion of broken systems to indicate that, you know, the role for design is to sort of fix the systems. Um, and that that's really the best way that we have to move forward. And, you know, as I, I think one of the kind of um, eye-opening moments for me um, was, you know, right around the time of um, 
Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and just before George Floyd's murder, when the Black Lives Matter protests um, were kind of changing the narrative around how we think about systems, particularly in, in talking about the ways in which uh, these systems are not systems that are not working. Um, these are systems that were designed um, to oppress people. Uh, and so that the racism was built in from the very beginning. It's not just the effect of a few bad actors or a few um, misaligned priorities. And so for me, I'm trying to think about whether systems are the issue. Um, and it's a kind of big conceptual challenge um, because we live in a world of all sorts of systems and, and kind of unmaking and unraveling them seems impossible. But on the other hand, I'm constantly reminded of the fact that the kind of incremental, improve, quote unquote, improvement of systems that we all sort of um, subscribe to does not seem to be changing them in better ways. And so, you know, maybe we need a really fresh way of approaching that. So for me, it's been through this notion of unmaking or unraveling. Um, and that comes in sort of two um, two forms. One is how, how might we approach really unraveling some of the big systems that we've built. So what would, it, what would the design challenge look like of, of unraveling Facebook? for instance, um, or unraveling the suburbs or unraveling search. Like what, you know, right now search um, to me is a fascinating topic because it's, um, we have in a sense given over to Google primarily the the sort of lens through which we see the world and acquire knowledge of the world. Uh, and they now own that lens. Um, and if we think that's not having some kind of major impact on how we understand the world, uh, we're fooling ourselves. We've kind of given over to this massive corporate entity because they offer it for free and it's really powerful. And so now we see a world that's structured by Google. We understand and learn about a world that's structured by search and that that is, you know, defining knowledge for us. So what would it mean to kind of undo that search, to unwind that? Um, if we don't believe that that's the way forward, is there a way to unwind our commitment to, to knowledge being framed that way? Um, suburbia, can we kind of unravel suburbia, which sort of served a purpose at one point, but really um, now just has mainly sort of negative environmental externalities uh, and social externalities as well. Um, and even, you know, democracy, do we have to really think hard about whether democracy as it's currently moving is a system that um, creates justice and equality? Um, you know, there's there's an argument to be made that, that it, it really doesn't. What would the design challenge be to kind of unravel those sort of systems? And then the other part of it being, well, if we're going to build new systems, can we build their unraveling into them? Can we sort of bake that into or build that into the DNA of these systems so that they don't grow and mature and harden into these kind of inequality generating machines, but instead they are constantly sort of unraveling themselves and, and allowing us to kind of remake them in new sorts of ways. So that's the, the, that's the big kind of thought experiment that I've been uh, working on during, you know, this most recent time. And then my other, uh, my other fascination is with the weather, um, and, uh, not with climate, um, not with, uh, you know, extreme weather, but actually just the ways in which, um, you know, weather is this kind of thing that surrounds us that's not designed, but it's not not designed, um, that it's relationship to who we are and how we interact with people uh, and the world that we build uh, is constantly sort of changing, that we have an impact on weather, weather has an impact on us. And I'm just really fascinated at this kind of invisible, built in, almost built environment that surrounds us and how can I kind of think through sort of weather and all its banality uh, and all its everydayness as this topic we love to chit-chat about. Um, but that has really a kind of profound effect upon everything that we do all the time, but sometimes we kind of don't see it. And in that way, it reminds me a little bit of scale in that it's this thing that I can kind of see is really interesting. And so I've got to like get at it, even though I know that I won't be satisfied with whatever I come up with. But, you know, that's been kind of um, out there in the fog, so to speak, um, from the from the uh, end of writing, not to scale. 
I could talk about the weather for ages. I, you sure could. You, <laughs> you, you, you unknowingly have, have accepted an invitation to talk on a podcast with a complete weather nerd who every single morning, the first thing that she reads is not just, doesn't just look at the weather, she reads the entire scientific um, uh, discussion. Of course. And then will tell me who she thinks has written the discussion in the what office and which, whether she's, they're using the, the, the US models or the European models or et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, um, How can you know is, the weather if you don't do that? Yes. Well, it is fascinating. And I was just reading a, um, a book that uh, one of the things we're talking about the weather is that the, um, the, the interesting part of the, the artificial nature with which we, we talk about the weather and that we measure the weather, right? That it's, we talk about things in numbers that aren't, you know, that are just, that are constructed constructs. We talk about how the seasons change and those are constructs, you know, the, the date that the season will change. Like all of these things that are sort of fascinating how, but we, we all sort of have come together and agreed on those. But um, I'm also interested by because those are all changing so much. Like what does it mean when the, the patterns that we've constructed to describe this thing are suddenly in such turmoil? It's sort of changing. Oh, it's fascinating. Uh, yet another system. Yeah, and, and that, was, that was kind of one of the points of the, not to scale also was to just look at those measurement systems and say, you know, we've come to trust them and they seem in some ways uh, kind of absolute and natural as if they've always existed. But they're human constructs that are often uh, faulty, um, that come out of faulty assumptions about the world or that, you know, have uh, just come to dominate for one reason or another. And so, you know, what we think of as often kind of hard and fast and true science Often to scientists, they don't see it that way at all. They see all the kind of fuzziness of it, and they see all the uncertainty and precision that's built into these kinds of measurement systems. And so, you know, we have to kind of take them with a grain of salt. But you think about something like, you know, the cardinal directions or time, and it feels like it's this thing that's that that's natural, that exists kind of, you know, before humans, but it didn't. It's a, you know, it had different variations, different countries approach time differently. Um, and it's just another system that we've invented to help kind of organize our experience. Um, and that means it's also open to change or rethinking or, you know, becomes a creative opportunity to imagine something really different. We had a a student uh, group once do a project looking at um, creating different time zones within one city um, so that you could actually get people operating on slightly different schedules and you'd relieve traffic and you'd in, in potentially improve things like access to daycare and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, the stuff that we often think, uh, the technological things that become normalized or naturalized in our world are often really great opportunities to, to kind of rethink and reimagine. I'm pretty sure that we could definitely talk about scale and we could talk uh, about systems and certainly Helen could talk about the weather all day. Um, so weather forecasting, weather forecasting. Yes, that is definitely. I can't talk about the weather all day. Yes, but, but you can talk weather about weather forecasting. Um, but we, 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 we can't take up that much of your time. Um, just want to say thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Um, and, uh, I hope that, uh, all of our listeners will check out not to scale and, and have a read of it. We both enjoyed it quite a lot. Thank you so much for reading it. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me here. This has been a really fun conversation. There's a lot more we could talk about. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on Substack or your favorite podcast platform. And please leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. Seriously, a review on Apple Podcasts is a big deal. And if you like how we think, then contact us about our speaking and workshops and human-centered product design. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com, and you can contact us at hello at GetSonder.com. You can learn more about making better decisions in our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. The book is an essential guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for making better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Please check it out at mbd.zone on Amazon, bookshop.org, or place an order through your favorite local bookstore. It's better than solid state.